Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We're in a series titled Jesus Immediately uh, because Mark loves to use that word immediately or as it'll be translated in the passage this morning, at once. Mark is in a rush, as it were, to get us to confront his central character, Jesus Christ. And this morning in our passage, there's, there's a bit of a scene shift as we move from these rapid-fire stories of Jesus doing miraculous wonders to Jesus discoursing, to him telling a parable, which is something he's quite famous for, but parables are actually pretty rare in the gospel according to Mark. What we're going to look at this morning is the first parable of Jesus that Mark records Jesus is on the scene teaching, healing, casting out demons, doing serious good, and yet he's facing, despite all the good he's doing, the obvious good for people, he's facing serious opposition from both the religious leaders and from his own family, as we saw last week. And our passage today 
answers the question, why? Why? Why is this person who's doing such obvious good for so many people encountering such fierce opposition? Well, Jesus offers an answer in the form of this first recorded parable. And the function of the parable and and the ones that follow is to illumine what has come before. So, So that's how our passage can be kind of stitched together with the ones before. Chapter 4 functions to illumine and interpret what has taken place in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And the punchline of the parable is that the ultimate obstacle, the ultimate problem is not the message, nor is it the messenger. It's unreceptive hearts. The ultimate problem is not the message or the messenger. The ultimate problem is unreceptive hearts. Here's how the passage is structured. Perhaps you noticed this as Morgan was reading it through. In in verses 1 to 9, Jesus tells the parable. The parable of the sower, or I think more accurately uh, called the parable of the soils. And then in verses 10 to 12, there's something of of a commercial break in which Jesus reveals the purpose of parables in general. So he kind of zooms out to talk about how parables in general function, and then he returns to the regularly scheduled programming in verses 13 to 20, and he explains the parable of the soils. So in verses 1 to 9, he tells it. Verses 10 to 12, he explains it. He situates it uh, with all parables. And then in verses 13 to 20, he interprets this specific one. Two points that I want to think about with you this morning that arise out of these verses. Number one, watch out. Parables are dangerous. And number two, listen up. The soil is decisive. Watch out. Parables are dangerous. Listen up. The soil is decisive. First, watch out. Parables are dangerous. Look there at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. This seems to be his biggest crowd yet. So big, in fact, that he's abandoned the shore and is standing in the water on this kind of makeshift pulpit of a boat facing the multitude on the shore. You can just kind of imagine the scene, the sound of seawater lapping against the shore, the smell of freshly caught fish, the the bustle of the crowd, the faces of a wide-eyed people eager to be wowed. And as Jesus surveys the crowd from the boat, he sees something which they cannot. He sees the mystery of the kingdom being worked out in their lives. Some are trusting him. Others are feeling uncertain, Some are stuck in indifference, and still others, as we thought about the last couple weeks, are hardened and hardening 
in unbelief. And so Mark tells us, verse 2, that he taught them many things by parables. Parables is a bit of a generic term, kind of a broad term in the Gospels. It can refer to similes and metaphors and long stories and short stories. Jesus is, and we're going to see actually different kinds of parables, even here in chapter 4. But he starts with the parable of the soils. And then in verse 10, after he tells the parable of the soils, we come to this, as I said, commercial break, except this commercial doesn't distract from the story, it explains it. Look there at verse 10. When Jesus was alone, so we're not on a boat anymore, we're we're in some private setting. When Jesus was alone, the 12 and others around him, that is other disciples, other followers of his, asked him about the parables. My guess is they're asking this because it doesn't seem like the parable strategy is working so well. I mean, it's not obviously helping the mission. People are confused. People are angry. They're clearly not picking up what Jesus is putting down. If anything, the parables are intensifying the opposition. We've got some questions, Jesus. His followers are saying, we've got some questions about your strategies, return on investment. Verse 11, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Emphasis on the you. In other words, the the secret of the kingdom of God is a wrapped gift and your name is on the tag. And what's the gift? Well, it's understanding the secret of the kingdom of God. The Greek word for secret is mysterion. It's it's an important word in the New Testament. It doesn't mean a riddle. It means an unveiling. The, The revelation of something that was always present but previously hidden. This happens a lot in the New Testament because the Old Testament is like a room full of treasures, but it's dimly lit. And in the New Testament, the lights are flipped on. It's not that the treasures are created for the first time, but it's that we are given eyes to see what was always there. It's like those old magic eye books from the 90s, if you you remember that, Uh, those books where there were paintings in which an image was embedded, and if you didn't have eyes to see the image, the hidden image, you didn't see it. Jesus is saying that when it comes to God's kingdom, to recognizing that the rule and reign of God has touched down on earth in him, that there are insiders and there are outsiders. Those who stare at Jesus and see a divine portrait. And those who stare at Jesus and see nothing of the sort. And those outsiders who stare at Jesus and don't see divinity are not innocent. They're hardened. Again, verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. 
But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that, and here he quotes the prophet Isaiah from 700 years before, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This is one of the hardest teachings in the Bible. And if we're going to be faithful, we must face it. We must face it. And what makes it hard is the first two words of verse 12. So that. The meaning of those words is what makes this such a hard teaching. Much ink has been spilled to explain this away as something other than a purpose statement. But that's what it is. And that's how it functioned in the original context of Isaiah chapter 6. We're not going to turn there. We read it earlier in our service. But you can look at it on your own time again and see that Isaiah was commissioned to speak to the people of Israel words that would not only reveal truth, but also conceal truth. Just as Pharaoh way back in the book of Exodus, was not an innocent victim. God hardened his heart, yes, but so did Pharaoh. It wasn't like God was pouring concrete onto a flower bed. God was pouring concrete where it belongs, which is on concrete. He was not hardening a soft and tender heart. God does not harden soft and tender hearts. And the holy, holy, holy Lord in the throne room of the temple in Isaiah 6 who spoke words to the prophet and commissioned him to speak this unflattering message to the people of Israel, that Lord has arrived on earth in the person of Jesus and Jesus is saying, there is such a thing as a heart that hardens like concrete under the glare of God's truth. I can't put it better than the Puritans did. They used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. If you understand that sentence, a lot of your Bible will start to make sense. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So here's what you got to realize about parables. The way they were taught to you in vacation Bible school, no offense to those sweet volunteers, was likely too tame. Parables are not like little fortune cookies you crack open and, ha, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. They're, they're not just Jesus' best attempt at Aesop's fables. You've got to remember that Jesus here is thronged by people on the shore who want miracles but don't want him. So the, the parables are functioning kind of like a filter. They filter in some and they filter out others. They filter in those who are spiritually hungry who don't just mouth the words to a song like, Speak, O Lord, but desperately cry those words out from their heart. 
who mean the words of that song. They filter in those who, like the disciples here in verse 10, are coming to Jesus in good faith, asking questions like, "Uh, can you elaborate, please? We want to understand so that we can believe. But the parables also filter out those who are just standing on the shore or sitting in church for religious entertainment to fulfill some spiritual quota. Notice that the judgment is directed not at people who are morally neutral. It's not like God is arbitrarily consigning people on a whim to having parables either reveal truth or conceal truth. No, the judgment is directed at people who are already outsiders, that is, who have already come to the decision, the settled decision, to reject Jesus and his authority. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that's the running theme with these religious leaders in particular. And friend, you know this dynamic from everyday life. If you fail to stimulate your mind, you will eventually lose your your, your ability to summon its full power. If you fail to exercise a certain muscle, you will eventually lose its use. And if you do not eagerly embrace God's truth when it comes to you, you may lose your chance. Unless we think that God's filtering, concealing, hardening of what's already hard, unless we think that this leaves us as puppets without responsibility in a world run by a sovereign God, Jesus says, Think with me about this parable. In other words, if the commercial break emphasizes divine sovereignty, the parable itself emphasizes human responsibility. That's point number two. So point one, watch out. Parables are dangerous. Point two, listen up. The soil is decisive. Before we look at the explanation of the parable, I want you to first notice the first word in the giving of the parable. How does verse 3 start? Verse 3, a farmer went out, no. It starts with the word, listen. This is not a suggestion. Jesus was not very good at giving suggestions. This is a summons. It's the first time, by the way, that this command, this particular command to listen shows up in the whole gospel of Mark. And the verb to hear is going to function, if you have ears for it, like a drumbeat throughout this entire chapter. And the other thing I want you to see is down at verse 13. Down at verse 13, this is how Jesus kind of ends that interlude, that commercial break on the meaning or on the purpose of parables in general. He says, Don't you understand this parable? That is, this parable of the four soils. How then will you understand any parable? So there's a sense in which our passage today is the key to unlocking all the parables. 
Well, how is that? Well, I, I think it's actually not very complicated. I think the reason the parable of the soils functions like an answer key for all the parables is because all the parables Jesus is saying are going to provoke different kinds of responses because they're going to be falling on different kinds of hearts. Starting in the next verse, Jesus begins to unveil to his followers this particular parable's meaning. Verse 14, the farmer sows the word. So picture an ancient Palestinian farmer with a seed bag likely tied to his waist, walking through the field, kind of rhythmically throwing, casting seed. And because of wind and other factors, that seed would often end up on various kinds of terrain, on the edges of a field, on roadways beside a field, in shallow soil areas, perhaps in certain places that are cluttered with briars and weeds. And in my parable, Jesus is saying, this parable, what's being scattered is, verse 14, the word, the gospel, the message of my kingdom. In fact, that term, word, shows up eight times in just these six final verses. Don't miss the fact that the farmer featured here is not stingy with the seed. He's not overly selective with where he throws it. He's not a self-appointed soil inspector. No, he's a generous and indiscriminate sower. And the application for us is obvious when it comes to our evangelism, our gospel proclamation. We shouldn't be more fixated on inspecting the soil than we are on just scattering the seed. And as we say in our church covenant, leaving the results to God. Because in the final analysis, people's response is not in our hands. The only thing that's in our hands, according to the parable, is seed. The purpose is for it not to remain in your hands forever. The purpose of picking up seed out of a seed bag is to release it. What's in our hands is seed. God is in charge of the soil. And Jesus says there are four kinds of soil. Four kinds of hearts onto which the word of the gospel rains down. And here's the first kind, verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Satan, elsewhere described as the prince of the power of the air, is here likened to a bird who swoops down and snatches up the word of the gospel. And does he have to work hard, according to verse 15? No, he does so effortlessly because the seed, the food, it's just sitting there atop the hard-packed dirt. In context, this first kind of soil is certainly referring to the religious leaders who were the ones most in danger of the parables having that 
concealing and blinding effect. Because these religious leaders were not good faith seekers. They had hardened their hearts to Christ and the kingdom he was bringing. In other words, there's a kind of person who doesn't just tolerate the fact that their heart is hard and kind of made of concrete. They revel in it. They're they're concrete fans. They glory in their hardness of heart. So heart number one is hardened, and it's easy prey for the evil one. Heart number two, though, is not so much hardened as it is shallow. Look at verse 16. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The most striking thing about soil number two, heart number two, is that once upon a time, it got counted on an, evangel- on a, on an evangelistic roster. Perhaps this person was rushed into the waters of baptism. Perhaps this person enjoyed the privileges of church membership. They prayed to receive Christ. And yet, time, and more specifically, trouble, revealed that their commitment to the word of the king and to the king of the word was only inch deep. Life sprouted up with promise. People celebrated. There was emotion. There was enthusiasm. But that life sprouted up only to wither away as if it was under a Palestinian sun. Look at verse 16. How fast does this kind of person believe the gospel? So not only are we saying that this is someone who walked the aisle or prayed the prayer or professed repentance and faith. Not only did it happen, but what was the speed? Well, according to verse 16, at once. That's Mark's word for immediately. How do they fall away? Look at the end of verse 17. Quickly. They abandoned Christ just as readily as they embraced him. In other words, beginning beginning of verse 17, they last, quote, only a short time. They're temporary, which in the New Testament is the word that is the antithesis of eternal. It's the same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4.18 when he says, we fix our eyes on what is seen, not on, what it, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. Same word, soil number two, but what is unseen is not temporary. It's eternal. The sun can grow a plant or it can scorch it. 
depending on the depth of the soil and the firmness of the roots. And likewise, brothers and sisters, trials and hardships will either deepen or destroy the roots of a professing believer's faith. River City Baptist, we are going to be tempted at times because we're humans, <laughs> because we're fallen. We are going to be tempted at times to be overly enamored with fast growth, whether that's growth that we hope for as a church congregationally, which is not a bad thing. It's fine to pray that the Lord would grow us. There's no virtue in being small, but there's also no necessary virtue in being big. But not just growth as a congregation. It's easy to be overly enamored, overly taken with quick, apparent growth in a believer. But you know, it's the slow-growing plants. I'm not a horticulturist, but I did read some commentaries this week. Apparently, it's the slow-growing plants that have the deepest roots. You know, it's actually not that hard to get positive responses to the gospel. Summer of 2004, six-week mission trip in China, we saw, our team saw 37 what we called PRCs in our, in our code since it was a closed country, prayers to receive Christ. Came back and I just remember there was this poem that one girl on our team had written and I just remember the line, praise the Lord that 37 are going to heaven we, we rejoiced in that, and when I returned to live there a couple years later, not one of those could be found. Now, maybe I'll arrive in glory and a few of them will be there. Praise the Lord. But we were really quick to rush people to a point of decision and to invite them to pray a prayer without, I think, talking with them about the demands of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. You have not fully or faithfully shared the gospel if you have not encouraged people to count the cost because we're not just saying, hey, here's a get-out-of-hell-free card, here's a savior. We're also saying he's also the king. But a lot of gospel presentations out there, they basically offer the benefits of Good Friday without the corresponding obligations of Easter Sunday. It's like, you can have your sins forgiven because of the cross, but what we're maybe sometimes less clear on is, yeah, he and a dead Savior. He got up, and he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he calls you to give your allegiance to him. This is why at RCBC, we, we are not in the business of trying to just create the most epic emotional experience. Not because we're anti-emotions. I mean, we are commanded to be joyful. Affection, having affection for Jesus is 
an, is evidence of Christian maturity. But if you just create a, an emotional, manipulative environment, it's not that hard to get positive responses to Christ. And we don't want to fall prey to that kind of, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 4, that kind of salesmanship. So this is why we as a church don't want to err on one of, either of two extremes. On, on the one hand, when, when someone professes faith, whether it's one of our children, one of our teenagers, someone who's just visiting the church, our, our first response ought not to be caution. Our first response ought to be celebration. We ought to be thrilled that someone has apparently bowed the knee to the king of the universe. We want to be quick to rejoice with those who rejoice. And yet, if we read our Bibles carefully, there also does have to be a kind of praise God, but wait and see. And it's, it's dangerous to have one without the other. We don't want to be a wait and see church and not praise God. But we also don't just want to be a praise God will take your word for it church and not have a bit of a wait and see posture because we have something called the parable of the soils. How many of the four prayed to receive Christ? Three. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. But three of the four pray to receive Christ. How many of them show up in glory? Only one. And that is meant to be sobering and to give us pause, not in any way to temper our gospel ambition. Oh, we ought to be ambitious about getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. But along with our celebratory praise God response, we also ought to be those who understand that true conversion, the evidence of true conversion is revealed over time as someone perseveres through hardship. Well, we've seen the hard heart, the shallow heart, but there's also, Jesus says, the crowded heart. That's the third heart, the crowded heart. Look at verse 18. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So if heart number two underestimates the hardship of the kingdom, then heart number three underestimates the value of the kingdom. Because so many other things in that crowded heart are vying for first place. This kind of heart, Jesus is saying, chokes the word. It, it suffocates it to death. And Jesus says here, I'll give you three spiritual choking hazards. Three spiritual choking hazards. Number one, the worries of this life. The worries of this life. In other words, the kinds of cares and concerns that people have when their lives are dictated by the values of this world. It's the same word used in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. This heart, soil number three, Instead of doing that difficult and deep work of 
taking our worries and anxieties. By the way, the mark of a genuine Christian is not that you have no anxieties. It's that you know where to transfer them. The mark of a mature heart is that you take your anxieties and you get into the habit of transferring them to God. But this heart, soil number three, instead of transferring anxieties, accumulates them and hoards them and just kind of marinates in them. Another choking hazard, Jesus says, is the deceitfulness of wealth. Why does he call it this? Why doesn't he say the temptation of wealth? Well, it's because money has a way of deceiving us. Money's not an inherently bad thing at all, but it cannot provide the happiness and the fulfillment and the security that we often think it can Jesus was very clear about this in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, God and money, God and stuff. First Timothy 6, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money. So notice, this is 1 Timothy 6, 6, 6 to 10. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. Notice that what I've already read is, those who want to get rich. So it's not just about having money. It's about wanting more and more. And then verse 10, it's not for money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's for a love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because some people eager for money, and here's where this intersects with the parable of the soils. What happens to such a person, to a money lover, to someone whose security is more tied to their bank account than to their Savior, here's what happens. 1 Timothy 6.10, they wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. So Jesus is talking about a kind of soil that gets choked out and the choking hazards or the, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. The, the final one he adds is just kind of a a drunk junk drawer, right? It, it just represents a lot of things. Desires for other things. I mean, just when you think you're off the hook and you're like, I'm not struggling too much with anxiety or I'm not a money-focused person, Jesus is like, and what about desires for other things? The constant craving for more and more because Jesus is just, frankly, not enough for you. This is how the kingdom of God gets crowded out, choked out in the heart of a professing believer by the distracting and entangling weeds of the world. Some of you will be familiar with the name Demas. He shows up a few times in the New Testament. And I want to show you something about this fellow named Demas. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church of Colossae, a a city in modern-day Turkey. He's giving some farewell greetings, and he says this in Colossians 4, 14. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, famous to us for being the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So these are Paul's ministry associates. Demas sends his greetings. Now turn to Philemon. Now Philemon is hard to miss. It's only one chapter, but it's going to come right before Hebrews near the end of the New Testament. Look how Paul ends the letter to Philemon, starting in verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark. Shout out to our author, by the way. There's Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So there he is again, this fellow Demas. He's sending his greetings. He's a fellow worker of Paul. Now turn to 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy, you're going to turn backward, uh, what, two books. 2 Timothy is the, is the last letter that Paul ever wrote from prison. And look at the final chapter of this final letter. These, these are the last recorded words from the apostle's life. 2 Timothy 4 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. This is one of the saddest verses in the New Testament. One of Paul's closest and apparently faithful ministry associates chose the alluring, broad path of the world over the costly, narrow path of the cross. And this continues today. I mean, Paul was an inspired apostle and he was blindsided by Demas' defection. We should not be blindsided. We we should be gutted. We We should be saddened, but we should not be shocked when professing believers, even ministry leaders, fall away. The Christian life is a long race, and not everyone makes it to the end. RCBC, don't be shocked or knocked off balance when a professing believer, even someone that has meant a lot to you spiritually, falls away. Don't let it make you doubt your own salvation Don't let it make you suspicious of all Christians. Don't let it shake your confidence and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But just note that the Bible gives us a well-worked-out category for false professors. I don't mean teachers at VCU. I mean professors as in those who professed to be Christians and are clearly not. And the parable of the sower is a gift 
the soils. It's a gift because it gives us categories for this. And listen, none of it takes Jesus by surprise. Some people think, well, this is proof that Christianity isn't true because look at all these hypocrites. The founder of it called it. Jesus is not up there in heaven freaking out about apostasy. He warned us plainly in describing life in the last days, which we're in. I'm just going to read a few verses from Matthew 24. You don't need to turn there, but listen for the word many. Matthew 24, starting at verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Not the love of some and not the love of many might grow cold. No, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus could not be clearer. Some are going to throw in the towel. Some are going to deceive. Others are going to be deceived. Many hearts living in the freezing wilderness tundra that is this world are going to slowly freeze to death as they distance themselves from the crackling fire of God's word. Oh, the importance of brothers and sisters, of staying the course and finishing well. And I know we've not been around long enough as a church, but if I've tried to accent anything, if I've tried to emphasize anything in our first many weeks together as a church, it's been the fact that if you hope to make it to the end, you have no shot if you're going to do it alone. I mean, it's been observed by many people that if you want to run fast, run alone. But if you want to run far, if you want to make it, then you're going to need a church family. Let's make it. How amazing would it be if we could have a reunion 10,000 years from now in the world to come and every single one of us was present and accounted for? Endure to the end. The first three types of hearts, hard, shallow, crowded, they all fail to produce anything for the harvest. But there is, thankfully, one more, and that is the fruitful heart. Look there at verse 20. Others, like seed sown on good soil, good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Finally, we come to the heart Jesus is after. This person bears fruit-producing evidence of their love for his word and their loyalty to his kingdom. They expect trials. They expect the, the sun of life to bear down and scorch them at times, but they are resolved to sink their roots deep into the water, into the soil of God's word. They expect to be distracted, to be anxious, to be tempted by other things, but they're being held accountable. They're being vigilant. They're fighting to pray with the psalmist, Psalm eighty-six, eleven. 
Oh, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The obvious question that confronts each of us in this parable. I mean, this is one of those parables where it's kind of left to us to finish the story. The lingering question is, which kind of a soil are you? Which kind of soil are you? And you know the condition of your heart can change? You can change soils. There are people who in one season of life were perhaps soil number four and then, but here's the good news. If you know someone that you think is soil one, two, or three, there's still hope for them. The Holy Spirit is not bound by our expectations. Pray that those in whom the word of God has been planted, in those on whom gospel seed has been, has been cast, would, before they day, the day they see the judge face to face, they would have embraced him and internalized his word and come to know him, not as their judge, but as their father and their savior. And you realize, don't you, it's easy when I ask that question, what kind of a soil are you, to think back to your conversion. Don't do that. It's important that you were converted, but do you know that assurance in the Bible is always a present tense thing? Do you realize you're sitting under the word of God being scattered every single Sunday? Every sermon is the parable of the soils. Which kind of soil are you going to be? Are you going to listen up? Are you going to hear? Are you going to respond? Are you going to obey with a glad and fruitful heart? Well, in conclusion, we, we are obviously called to be sowers, to be active in evangelism, and that's an important takeaway from this parable, but the ultimate sower is not us. The ultimate sower is Christ. But he's not only the sower. He is also the seed. It's amazing that he would come to earth. The second person of the eternal trinity would take on flesh and come to earth in the weakness of a seed. He didn't, come, he didn't come like a hammer, like a fire, like a sword. He came like a seed. Now, am I calling him a seed just because that's a slick way to end a sermon that's been about seed sowing? No, I'm just quoting him. John 12, 23, near the end of his life, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified which in the Gospel of John means to be killed. But Jesus understood that the cross would be his ultimate glory. He would reign from where he hung. But he says, the, the, the hour has come for me to die, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, 
it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is saying, I have to go away and die. Otherwise, you have no hope. If I don't go into the ground as the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, 15, if I'm not planted into the ground, there will be no harvest. And friends, we are that harvest. And if you're here and you think that you are soil number one or two or three, the most important takeaway for you is not some interesting factoid from first century Palestine about Jesus on the shore. The most important thing for you is to recognize that you were created to know and bear fruit for God. But you have turned away from him in your rebellion. You have chose to go your your own way. You've lived out your days on the hard-packed soil, in the rocky places, in the thorn-choked spots. And Jesus is coming to you and saying, you can be good soil. I'm coming to you with the water of my word. I conceal truth from those who are operating in bad faith, from those who don't really want to understand in order to believe. But if you're operating in good faith, if you're understanding in order to believe, if if you're wanting insight in order to believe, then here's what you need to know. Whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. And the seed of the Holy Spirit will be implanted in you. In fact, the Holy Spirit will so reside in you that you will be able to be fruitful and multiply, not just in some biological way, but more importantly, as we thought about last week, in a spiritual way, in a church family of mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters, all united around the fruitful and multiplying true Adam, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we rest in the fact that you are sovereign over the soils, but we also understand that we are responsible for our response. And so Lord, we pray that we would be a heart of people that are marked by tender, fertile soil, that we would eagerly embrace your word, even the hardest parts of it, And that we would not only get your word right, but we would get your word out. And that we would see fruit born in your timing to the glory of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.